0: after winning his third Super Bowl, Tom Brady was being interviewed by CBS. and He was on top of the mountain of sports, and and he was also called at that time the most eligible bachelor in America. He was beloved by everyone who would approach him. In that interview, he famously said, I don't sleep any better at night knowing that I'm the most eligible bachelor in America. And he was asked, what do you mean by that? And here's how he responded. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something out there greater for me? I mean, maybe lots of people would say that is what it is. I've, I've reached my goals. I've reached my dreams. But me, Brady said, I think, God, there has to be more than this. And with that, the interviewer said, what is it? And Tom Brady responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Many of us have maybe uh, never been the most eligible, eligible bachelor uh, in America, but we've probably wrestled with that same question. Is there not more to life than what life is offering us? There's got to be more to ring out of this life than Netflix binging and internet surfing and a life that is overstretched and overscheduled and finances that are over max. And so we're constantly asking this question internally, what is it that finally will satisfy me? And we, we ask that question. You may not realize this, but, but that question uh, drives the decisions that you make. We do what we do because our heart wants what it wants and our heart wants what it wants because we believe what we believe. And if we believe that something will finally offer us satisfaction, then that internal longing and question will drive the decisions of our life. And so uh, we're often looking for that. So if we believe that uh, our children being athletic stars uh, will bring satisfaction to our heart, then guess what? We'll reorient our finances and our schedules around that thought. If we believe that pleasure or travel will finally and fully satisfy our hearts, then we'll reorient our finances and our schedules around those actions. If we believe that food or drink or sex will finally satisfy our hearts, then we'll reorient our schedules and our finances around those actions. If you believe that career achievement will finally and fully satisfy your heart, then guess what? You'll reorient your schedule and your finances around that belief. And we've said this now for hundreds of years. We know that money and riches can never satisfy a person's heart, but yet we still see people who are driven by that very pursuit in their life. And the reality is, here's why. Despite the Bible's counsel... Uh, we're still not deeply convinced that there isn't something, in fact, under the sun that will finally and completely satisfy our hearts. Most of us live with that kind of nagging, base-level thought of there has to be more to life than what I was experiencing. Maybe, in fact, Mick Jagger was actually a prophet when he said, I can't get no satisfaction, right? Keith Richards is actually older than a prophet. You should write that down. That's notable as well. Surely there has to be something under the sun that can satisfy our hearts, but the problem is we've not experienced everything under the sun, so we just keep chasing after things with the hope that they'll do what we want our hearts to be satisfied by. But here's the good news. The Bible records the words of a man who truly experienced everything under the sun and has wisdom for those of us still searching for satisfaction, his name was King Solomon. So if you've got your phone, your Bibles, your tablets, whatever you're using this morning uh, uh, online, I invite you to turn with me to a starting point to 1 Kings chapter 3 as we continue our The Story uh, series. And so for the last uh, 13 weeks, uh, we've been tracing the flow of redemptive history through the Bible in what's called the upper story of what God is doing in redemptive history. And uh, we learned that after the Garden of Eden, God once again wanted to have a dwelling place among his people. And so he created a people for himself, a nation called Israel. And that's where we've been in the series, is kind of studying the life uh, of Israel. And we've been learning some things of what does it look like to align the lower story of your life with what God is doing in redemptive history. We've also learned some things that you should not do if you want to align your life with the lower, or the upper story of what God is doing. And so we're going to learn some things from. Uh, Solomon here beginning in 1 Kings chapter 3, but we're also going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, so if you want to mark that as well, we're going to get there a little bit later. And so walking through this story and the development of God's relationship with the nation of Israel so that he could once again have a dwelling place among his people, what we learned a few weeks ago is that for a period of time, uh, Israel was led by a series of judges. And after that, Israel said, they looked around, they said, we want to be like every other nation. They've all got kings, we don't have a king, all we have are these judges, and so God, would you give us a king? And so God did that very thing, and so Israel is led by three kings. Now, this is super easy to remember, okay? Fits really cleanly, so if you want to know who Israel was led by, Israel was led by Saul for 40 years, and then Israel was led by David for 40 years, and then Israel was led by Solomon for how long? Anybody want to guess? 40 years. And so for a period of 40 years, Saul led, and then 40 years, David led, and then 40 years, Solomon led. And so that's what we're kind of picking up uh, in the history. In the past couple of weeks, we looked at some of the key events in David's life for us. We learned of David's battle with Goliath. We learned of David's sin with uh, Bathsheba last week. But before that sin, God had made a promise to David that his son would rule the kingdom and would also build a temple for a dwelling place of God's Glory. And so God keeps his promise to David, and uh, David passes off uh, the, the kingdom to his son Solomon. And Solomon, uh, his mother, was Bathsheba, the one who was formerly married to uh, Uriah. And so uh, here's what's incredible under Solomon's leadership, despite how he was sinfully conceived, uh, God doesn't use that to limit a person's past. Under Solomon's leadership, Israel saw this incredible task accomplished. That was laid on the heart of David. So if you remember back early in our series, uh, what we learned is this. Is that for a period of time, the Israelites wandered around the wilderness. And they had a temporary structure that was a dwelling place for God's presence. And that was called the tabernacle. And what happened for a long time, that was kind of where God was on location, if you will. And they began to look around and say, wow, all these other pagan groups... They're not serving the one true living God but yet their gods dwell in magnificent places and our God who's the greatest God of all deserves so much more and so we want to build a dwelling place for God's presence that is not temporary like the tabernacle and so they begin to construct the temple. And so David raised all the money for that. That's recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and then Solomon uh, takes over and under Solomon's uh, uh, reign, Israel had an unprecedented uh, prosperity. And Solomon is known as the king who literally had it all. His life is best summed up in the book of Ecclesiastes and some lessons and some principles there. And so when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he wanted the writer to say hey, all these things that you're searching for, I've experienced them and let me tell you what I've learned from all this experience. Now how did Solomon... Uh, gain so much? How was he so wealthy? Well, if we're reading uh, scripture, uh, what we find in the book of First Kings is that Solomon is told in a dream, hey, you can have uh, anything that you want. Can you imagine? Finally, if you ever wanted God to kind of be a genie in a bottle, here it is, right? And so if you were in Solomon's position, what would you ask for? And I think the answer is probably driven by what stage of life you're in. Some of you, if you're at a younger stage and you've got little sinners at home, you're like, I'd ask for a little peace and quiet. Amen? Some of you, if you're at a stage when your kids are grown, they've all moved out, you'd say, I may ask for a little noise at my house again, right? It's it's a little too quiet here. There's all kinds. What would you ask for? In a poll conducted by Forbes, people answered in many different ways. But the top ten included things like happiness, peace, joy, fulfillment, and money. In other words, if, if these things, I think if I could obtain these things, then somehow my soul, once and for all, would be satisfied. And so God approached Solomon in a dream and told him to ask, and it would be given to him. And so uh, let's pick up the story here in First Kings chapter 3, and we're going to start off looking at verses 6 through 9 in First Kings chapter 3. Beginning in verse 6, it says, And Solomon said, so at the end of verse 5, God says, "What do what, what, what do you want? What do you want? So here's what Solomon says. And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. Uh, You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on the throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen a a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Verse 9, therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Did you you hear that? Solomon asked for, for wisdom. He didn't ask for pleasure, he didn't ask for power, he didn't ask for, uh, you know, this incredible army, he didn't ask for loyalty from the people, he asked for wisdom. And so the reality is he knew that in his own power he was incapable of making all these decisions. You You ever sit back and think, you know, if I were the president, I would fill in the blank? Right? As if somehow, from afar, we know what they're doing, we know what they should do, despite the fact we've never held any kind of government office in our life. But if I were in charge, then I would do fill in the blank. All the while, we have no idea what we would do. And so that's where Solomon's at. He's like, I've never been in charge. The people are so great to be numbered. I don't, I don't even know when to come in, when to go out. I know nothing. And so uh, God he says, Lord, I want wisdom. And God loved that answer. How do we know that? Keep reading. Look at verses 11 through 14. And then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so there has not been anyone like you before you nor shall any like you arise after you. And I've also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor. So there shall not be anyone like you among the kings of all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep your statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And so here's the first thing I want you to see here in this passage. We can learn from Solomon's life if we want to align the lower story of our life with the upper story of what God is doing. It's simply this. A mind full of knowledge cannot satisfy your hearts. Now, knowledge and wisdom are connected, but they're not exactly uh, the same thing. Wisdom is knowledge applied. But knowledge is the foundation of wisdom, and the temptation in our culture is to elevate knowledge above everything else. Now, how do I know that? Here's why. Listen, I hear story after story after story of teenagers who should be living the best years of their life riddled and dominated by anxiety and stress due to academics. It is almost, uh, if you look at cultural studies, it is almost at a pandemic level. I know pandemic's a bad word right now. That when they surveyed the majority of teens in culture, they said, what's the greatest stress in your life? So many of them said, it's to perform well academically as if those grades determine my future and not a sovereign God. And so we can do that as parents and sometimes... Pressure can come from culture, but it also can come from uh, mom and dad. And So mom and dad, if that's you and you're in the room or watching online, let me just offer this word of wisdom, all right? Here it is. Write this down. Stop it. Stop putting more emphasis on athletic and academic development than you do on spiritual development. Your goal is not to raise an Einstein Or a LeBron, it's to raise a child who loves the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Godliness should be valued above academic or athletic uh, achievement in a biblical worldview. We should be more concerned about an anemic devotional life than we should be about bees or missed free throws. Knowledge is the foundation of wisdom, but ultimately, wisdom is the goal. But even though wisdom is to be preferred over knowledge in our culture, that, that knowledge can become idolatry, Solomon's going to show us that even having all the wisdom in the world will not satisfy the human heart. Now, how much wisdom did Solomon receive? The scripture says this, more than anybody preceding him. That's pretty impressive, right? And more than anybody who will ever come after him. And that's a little hard for you to reconcile because you listen to me teach all the time, right? Am I right about that? He's the wisest person who's literally ever lived to that point and literally will ever live up until Jesus comes back. Now the Bible's full of all kinds of genres of literature. Uh, there's the Pentateuch. There's historical narrative, which we've been walking through. There's apocalyptic or uh, prophetic literature. There's wisdom. There's poetry. There's the Gospels. But uh, in this section of wisdom literature which communicating uh, wisdom to people, uh, Solomon actually is the human author that God worked through to write three of the five books in the section of wisdom. Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Job and Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Uh, Solomon wrote three of those and he actually wrote some of the Psalms so he had a part in even the fourth one. That's how wise he was. is some of the greatest verses of wisdom in all the Bible came from the pen of Solomon through the Holy Spirit. Listen to this hit list. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything, there's a season, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what was planted. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And so Solomon didn't just use his wisdom to write. He also used his wisdom to rule what he needed it. Now immediately what happens is after Solomon asked for this wisdom, he has a chance to put it to the test. What happens is we encounter a story of two mothers and one baby. Skip down to chapter 3 verse 16 and start reading there. It says, Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house and I gave birth while she was in the house. And then it happened. The third day after I'd given birth that this woman also gave birth and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side. And while your maidservant slept and laid in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was, dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son who I had borne. Then the other woman said, No. But the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. And then they spoke before the king. And so this woman's her baby died. She suffocated him in in her sleep. And so what she do? She steals the other woman's baby, and they, they both claim, No, 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 the living one is my son. And they bring themselves before Solomon, and he has to exercise his wisdom not just to write but to rule. And so what does he do? Keep reading verse 23. And then the king said, the one says, this is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other one says, no, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. And then the king said, bring me a sword. What? And so they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. And then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son, and she said, O oh my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. Listen, how do you decide a paternity suit, so, right? This is the days before Moripovich. What do you do, right? And so apparently you get a sword. And Solomon, in all of his wisdom to rule, says, I'm going to figure this thing out, and they're going to divide him in half. And the one says, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, because she knows that will kill him. And the other says, hey, no problem, I'll take my portion to go, right? And in that moment, he discerns, guess what? That he knows who the rightful mother is, according to verse 26. Go down to verse 26. Or we'll go down to verse 27. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman a living child, by no means kill him. She is the mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered. And they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Now, now remember, here's a guy who said, hey, I'm a kid. I don't even know when to come in, when to go out. I know nothing. And so, Lord, of all the things you would give me, I would need wisdom the most. And the first time that his wisdom is tested to rule, he does it in such a wise way that all these people, this little kid said, wow, he is incredibly wise. And they feared him because they knew he could exercise wise justice. And so wisdom enables to see the truth and apply it. And so David was a good king in so many ways, but Solomon had more wisdom than anyone to previously lead in such a way. And no one since in the Bible says will ever has as much wisdom as Solomon. Now, if that were you, and everybody was looking at you and going, wow, you are the smartest, wisest person I've ever known. Don't you think finally and fully your heart would be satisfied don't you think that there will be something inside of you that says, you know what, I've kind of thought that all along. But now to hear other people proclaim it, it must be true. My heart is finally and fully satisfied. But listen to what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Here's what he said. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Listen to verse 17. Here's what he says and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceived that this also is striving after the wind. You know what he's saying? He said, here I thought that finally and fully my, my heart would be satisfied if I accumulated all this wisdom, but when I reached out for full and final satisfaction of my heart. It was like grabbing for the wind. It could not be grasped. So despite a mind full of knowledge and all the wisdom in the world, it still did not satisfy the heart of Solomon. Now here's here's something I want you to understand. If you're listening, say amen. Wisdom is incredibly valuable. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs uh, that we're to search after it like silver. Somebody anybody got a cigarette? It says that uh, we should actively seek to get wisdom. Uh, pro- I don't know why I said that. <laughs> Proverbs is the Magna Carta on wisdom. And over and over in the book of Proverbs, it's extolling the virtue of wisdom and it's admonishing people for, for foolishness. But as valuable as the Bible says, as valuable as silver for those who find wisdom, here's what Solomon is saying. As valuable as Wisdom is, it does not fully and finally satisfy your heart. Why? Because a mind full of knowledge or wisdom will not ultimately satisfy your heart. Solomon said, if you think that, you're going to be grabbing after the wind. It cannot be grasped. We also learned something else in the life of Solomon. let so go over and flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And so here in this passage, we're going to learn from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, as Solomon was also going to teach us that not only will a mind full of knowledge satisfy your heart, but a life full of pleasure cannot satisfy your heart as well. Remember what God said to Solomon? He said, hey, because you made such a wise request and you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give that to you. But on top of that, I'm going to give you all these other things that you could have and many people would have asked for. And so Solomon, all the riches, all the women, all the power, all, all these things, all the pleasure that you want, I'm going to give you wisdom, but I'm also going to reward you and give you all these other things as well. And so surely that would satisfy his heart, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 2, let's look at verses 1 through 8. And this is Solomon speaking. He said, I said in my heart, the inner man, come now. I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this was also vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their life. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born into my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself. Silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I inquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. He, he, listen, Solomon didn't just say, hey, I sought out laughter. He said, uh, I bought all the laughter you could possibly consume. He didn't just say, hey, I, I sought out food and drink. He said, like, I literally owned everything in that arena. He didn't simply marry a woman. 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, I don't know how the Bible records that of him, but also at the same time says he's the wisest person ever lived. Am I right? Solomon had an uninhibited sex life because of that. He had literally every kind of food and drink and access to it. Listen, DoorDash had nothing on King Solomon, all right? Listen to what the Bible records of Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 4. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores, C-O-R-S, that's that's a total of 6,600 liters of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened. Wow, now, now how much food? That was his daily provision. How much food would that feed? That would approximately feed somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 people. Solomon's life literally was one big party. You want laughter? I'll buy it. You want the finest of foods and drink? I'll buy it. You want an uninhibited sex life? I've got access to it. You want to have lots of friends and, and throw crazy parties, right? I'm your guy. He didn't just plant a garden, he planted forests. Surely, it made him feel complete. Surely, with this much pleasure at his disposal, then finally, once and for all, this guy who said, hey, wisdom doesn't do it for me, but I've got all these other things, and finally and fully, his heart must be satisfied, right? But Listen to what he said. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Here's what he said, of all the had obtained. Here's what he said. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. It wasn't like, oh, I exchanged all these material and pleasure things and I lost wisdom and man, I want wisdom back. He said, no, no, no. I added that onto what I already possessed. Right? So I've got everything. Literally, I've got everything. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any any pleasure. Now sometimes you and I think, oh man, I would love to fill in the blank. And then you look at your bank account and you're like, but I can't, right? What's Solomon say? Whatever looked good to my heart, whatever my heart desired, I indulged it. For my heart rejoiced in my labor. And this was reward from all my labor. Then I looked at all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed... It was all vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Now, can can you not fathom or imagine uh, it hard to believe that someone who could have so much but yet enjoy it so little? But we're not that different, are we? We live in the midst of a difficult season. I'm not diminishing that or downplaying that. But we're still, in the midst of this difficult season, we're still living in the most prosperous country in the entire world and let me tell you a good thing that the pandemic has produced spiritually and you should write this down because some of you have yet to think of a single good thing it's produced right you can think of all the things it's ruined but nothing it's actually produced let me tell you something the pandemic has produced spiritually it has exposed how much we have sought our hearts to be ultimately satisfied by experiences and pleasure it has removed out from under us all the props that we falsely have built our joy upon. Our Western culture tells us that we deserve to get all that life can offer. We deserve to be happy and fulfilled and satisfied. And life owes us its best. And if we think what we would make us happy and we don't obtain those things, then somehow we think that something has gone wrong. This week I was reminded of the story I read, read before of a Puritan who had been stripped of everything but a glass of bread, glass of bread. What is that? Maybe I've been drinking this morning. I don't even realize it. <laughs> a piece of bread and a glass of water in 17th century England. And that kind of punishment was actually pretty normal. They would kind of starve them to death for religious outsiders. And the Puritan's response every day was this. What? All of this and Jesus too. There's nothing wrong with being disappointed at canceled vacations and reduced social gatherings and limited attendance at sporting events. Nothing wrong with being disappointed. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the good gifts that God provides for us. But there's often an invisible line between enjoying something and it being our ultimate source of joy. There's often a line where we cross over enjoying something into depending on it to offer heart satisfaction that the creation was never designed to offer us. If you're listening, say amen. How do you know when you've crossed over that invisible line? Here's how. See how you respond when it's removed from your life. Are we disappointed or are we in fact devastated that all of our joy has been dashed to pieces because of all the experiences that have been canceled and forfeited? And During the season, listen, there's more opportunities to falsely believe. If I could just fill in the blank, then I would have some satisfaction. But Solomon dashes all of that to pieces with his life because he had everything Literally, he said, whatever my heart desired, I gave it what it wanted. So here's a guy who literally had everything, and he looks at his life, and he says, oh, if there was satisfaction there, it's like grasping for the wind. I had everything you could obtain, except a heart that was fulfilled. That word, vanity or meaningless, in the Hebrew, it's the word hevel. It's used 38 times. In the book of Ecclesiastes. Why so many times in a short book? Because here's what Solomon wants you to learn from his life, who was the wisest person who ever lived, who literally had everything you could ever want to do under the sun. And here's what he said None of it lasts. It's all vanity, all of it's grabbing after the wind. He had run the race to only realize it was actually a treadmill, it took him nowhere. Blame Pascal. Blaise Pascal, a famous philosopher and theologian, once said this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step, but to its object. This is the motive of every man, even of those who... Hang themselves. Now that's a dark truth, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, in other words, every person is seeking after their own happiness. They're just going about it in different ways. God has designed us, wired us to be satisfaction seekers. Here's the last truth I want you to settle on this morning, because if you don't, you'll never be able to align the lower story of your life with the upper story of what God is doing. You'll spend much of your life trying to grasp the wind. And here's the last thing I want you to see is simply this is that your heart will never be satisfied until your identity is settled. If you think acquiring knowledge and wisdom that at the end, that, that somehow that will give you a better identity before other people, guess what? Your heart will never be satisfied because someone will not be impressed with you. If you think that your heart can be satisfied in somehow building this life instead of settled on who all that you've been offered in Christ, guess what? Your heart will never be satisfied. Let me share again a quote from C.S. Lewis that I've shared several times before. It's the best quote that I could find on this. And here's what he said. He said, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. Pastor and uh, author, Paul Tripp says this. He says, it's like the kid that you've searched for the greatest Christmas gift ever. And when your kids are little, let's, let's be honest, you're more excited uh, than they are for them to open that gift, right? Because you know you had to knock down three elderly people to store to get it. They don't understand that. They don't understand you couldn't afford it. But you bought it anyway. And you're like, you know, they're just fumbling around. You're like, open the box! get it out like oh you know whatever it is lay it to the side and then play with the box and you're thinking I'm going to wear you out for the glory of God right that's what C.S. Lewis is saying he's saying when we think there's more joy to be found in the creation than there is in an intimate relationship with the creator we're the little kid playing with the box at Christmas Your heart will never be satisfied until your identity is settled. Now, for the sake of time, we don't have time to develop this thought. But here's the good news. It's pretty self-explanatory. God has designed us so that ultimate satisfaction for your heart will never be found in creation, but instead from a relationship with the Creator. Solomon in chapter 3 in the book of Ecclesiastes said this, that God has planted eternity in the hearts of men. What does that mean? That means that there is a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And what that means is this, you can pour everything you want into that hole, and guess what? Your heart will just consume it. You can try and fill it with, Pleasure, you can try and fill it with food or drink, you can try and fill it with experiences, you can try and fill it with achievement of yourself or your kids. But guess what? Your heart will just continue to consume all of those things. Why? Because your heart was never designed to be satisfied by anything created, but instead, a settled relationship with the Creator where all of your value, all of your identity, all of your resources come because of your relationship in Jesus Christ. And if you don't understand that, then guess what? You won't die satisfied one day. You'll die tired. Quote C.S. Lewis again, he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You know, when you quit working so hard in life, to build a better reputation before men and the stress that that causes it's when you finally and fully realize you're deeply valued because you're valuable to Jesus Christ do you know when you're finally laying aside that rat race to accumulate all these things it's when you're finally fully convinced that every heavenly blessing has been given to you in Jesus Christ Your heart will never be satisfied until you finally and fully rest in who you are in Christ and what is available to you because you belong to Him. And if you don't believe that this morning, guess what? You'll trade the hurried life and the stressed stressed out life and the overburdened life for the abundant life that's available in Jesus Christ. Nothing will ever satisfy a heart that is designed to be satisfied by a Savior. And if you don't know Him, today is a great day to meet Him. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, let me ask you the most important question anyone's ever going to ask you. Have you trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? What's your answer to that this morning? The quietness of this room, the privacy of your living room. What's your answer to that question? Are you still striving hoping that your good outweigh your bad? Are you still striving, hoping that you'll lead a life that's finally acceptable before God? Or have you come to the place where you realize that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness? And God knew that, so God sent a Savior named Jesus. And have you come to the place where you're willing to confess your sins? and throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ who died on the cross as payment for your sins, was buried and rose the third day. And would you receive Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you do that today? If you never have or you're not sure if you have, would you pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and for the forgiveness of your sins right now, right where you're at, right in your seat, right in your home, wherever you're listening? Would you do that right now? You're never going to find what you're looking for spiritually outside of Jesus. That's exactly how God has designed it. For those of you watching online, those of you in the room who have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, heads bowed, eyes closed, honest before God. How many of you are trying to find satisfaction, trying to find meaning in your life, trying to find value outside of Jesus Christ and all that you've been given in him you don't have to raise your hands but if that's you this morning would you just once and for all the greatest gift you'll ever receive at Christmas is to settle once and for all that everything I have in Jesus is enough I don't have to prove my worth because he said I'm valuable I don't have to build a better, more impressive identity because my identity is in Him. I don't have to strive for all this world has to offer because the Bible says I've been blessed with every heavenly blessing. Would you just once and for all say, Lord, help me to live settled that the only thing that will ever satisfy my heart is Jesus. Father I pray that as we go about this week as we live through uh, an unusual time in world history in this pandemic God every time that we're tempted to think that somehow joy can't be found because another event has been canceled yet every time we're tempted to think that that perfect gift would somehow bring us joy yet every single time that happens days and weeks ahead would you remind us that everything we've ever needed for ultimate joy everything we've needed for identity everything we've needed for satisfaction has already been given to us in Jesus Christ and God help us to live with a deep conviction of that truth nothing we will ever do will add to our identity nothing we will ever achieve will add to that identity nothing we will ever accumulate can add to that joy We're never meant to be satisfied by creation. And so God, help us more than this season, more than this time in history at any other point to find our joy, to find our heart's rest in Jesus Christ and who we are in Him and all that we've been given because of Him. Jesus truly is the greatest gift we'll ever receive. And so it's in His name we pray. Amen.